the Smiths with Big Mouth Strikes Again from the album The Queen Is Dead. I'm David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again as I spin the wheels of steel, playing songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. As always, I'll be crossing time, space and genre with the finest indie pop from the golden decade that was the 80s. Each week, I like a special guest, and this week it is the turn of Steve Mack from That Petrol Emotion. So I'll be bringing that interview throughout the show, probably in three or four easy-to-digest little section segments alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But to kick off the programme, I thought we should start with your favourite, my favourite. Yes, it is. Big decision. Take it away. (laughs) 
firm favourites on this show. That's the Pop Guns on the track called Waiting for Winter. Um, that was from the album Eugenie. And before that, we had our special guest, That Petrol Emotion, with their 1987 track, Big Decision, that was written by the one and only John O'Neill, who used to be in The Undertones, and he also wrote Teenage Kicks. Here comes Summer and Jimmy Jimmy. So, there you go. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show, bringing you the finest in indie pop from the golden decade. I will, be t- I will be telling you a bit later on in the show how you can contact me if you so wish. It's a free country, you don't have to. But anyway, this week's special guest is Steve Mack, as I caught up with him just before Christmas, all the way from Seattle. See, we just pushed the boat out and, uh, yes, expense the expense account went over overboard there. But anyway, it was worth it because it's a great interview. So I'll be bringing you that very soon. But another artist I caught up with only this week was the one and only... David or Davy Woodward from the Brilliant Corners. Yes, they from Bristol land. So I'll be bringing you a special on the Brilliant Corners very soon, but because we're feeling excited and also I've been channeling the spirit of the uh, the fantastic Brilliant Corners, I thought we should play their chart tap, topping, tra- tapping, who knows, a single It's Teenage. I'd like to take you out, but you might tell me no To hold you in my arms and to kiss you sweetly Oh, so sweetly like to make your bed and bring your cup to tea To wash your clothes and scrub your back But you won't let me, you won't let me Nothing ever happens and I guess it never will And a young boy's passions can make him very ill On a tip in a suburb there's a heart that's used to the grime And the waste and parental distaste And the sun, it never shone under the blackest day Tell me no To hold you in my arms And to kiss you sweetly Oh so sweetly I'd like to make you bed And bring you cups of tea To wash your clothes And scrub you back But you won't let me You won't let me Nothing ever happens And I guess it never will And a young boy's passions Can make you very ill On a tip in a suburb There's a heart that's used to the grind And the waste And parental distaste Sun. It never shone under the blackest day the
Easy Queasy, that um, is Julian Cope and the track called Passionate Friend, and that came from their Wilder album, which <laughs> I was just looking down, it uh, was released in 1981, which is a bit scary. And before that, we had The Brilliant Corners with the track called Teenage. That came from their album, Somebody Up There Likes Me. And as I said, I caught up with their um, one of their main men, singer-songwriter uh, David or Davy Woodward, all the way from Bristol. So I'll be bringing that interview very soon, because um, frankly, we loved the brilliant corners anyway this is david easter on the c86 show if you want to contact me we always love your messages you can via facebook or twitter just go to at c86 show and i will be there and um, as i said if you were paying attention at the beginning um, i caught up with steve mack from that petrol emotion just before christmas so i'll be bringing that interview very soon because um it's quite a long one and very engaging as well so um because we're channeling the spirit and the love of that petrol emotion i thought we should play genius moves
stuff that was a love parade and the track called out to sea and that's just come out on a new double cd compilation titled the test of time and that's on a record label called a turntable friend records and i do believe they're based in germany but um they've got a lot of exciting and interesting stuff mostly incredibly obscure so i've had to uh try and sort of get familiar with it but anyway that was la parade and the track called out to sea and before that we had our special guest that petrol emotion and the track called genius moves that i do believe came out in 1987 a fine year and i'm just aware of the time so what i'm going to do um, because i want to fit in all this interview that i did with steve mack from that petrol emotion is play one more track by the band and then go straight into the first part and i must admit exciting part of the interview this is going to be a toss-up between hey venus or it's a good thing i'm going to go for it's a good thing take it away boys
another track that was written by the one and only John O'Neill from the Undertones and obviously in that petrol emotion. That was It's a Good Thing and that came from their 1986 album Manic Pop Thrill. This is David Eastall, the C86 show, and this is going to be the first part of my interview with Steve Mack that I had quite recently where I asked him about the beginning of the band. The You know, obviously the, the band started from the ashes of the Undertones um, and... It was Raymond Gorman who was DJing actually back in Derry and John O'Neill would come to his club and love the records he was playing. Um, And in fact, Raymond was introducing him to all kinds of music that he hadn't really heard before, like Perubu and Can and things like that. And, you know, things led to things. And John finally said, well, we should just start writing some songs together. not long after that, they the drummer Kieran McLaughlin joined them, and he had been a fill-in drummer uh, for the Undertones from time to time, and he was sort of the local uh, teen drumming sensation there. So he joined and started playing with them. Um, of course, eventually, brother Damien O'Neill found out about it and said, "Hey, I want in. When do I? I want to play guitar." And they're <laughs> like, "Sorry, mate, uh, all full up. Where do you have two guitars?" So Damien said, "Yeah, no matter. I'll play bass." And they carried on like that and wrote uh, most of the first album before I even joined. Um, And in fact, they had played a handful of gigs, a couple even in London, and uh, had been approached by Creation to put out a record. And um, they went over to London to actually record the record. But in, in the interim, Creation got quite busy with a band called the Jesus and Mary Chain. So the Creation boys said, look, we don't, we don't have any money right now. If, if you're willing to wait, we can put a record out later. Uh, but of course, the guys weren't ready. They wanted to record immediately. And a small label called Pink Records said, well, no, man, no worries. We'll, we'll actually we'll pay for your record. We'll put it out for you. So they went and recorded the record <clears throat> and listened to it and just weren't happy with the vocals. Now, in the meantime... I had uh, been traveling for a year and ended up in London and loved it so much. I thought, wow, I'm, I'm not going home. I'm going to stay in London for a while. And I was working in a, in a crappy little pizza restaurant in Covent Garden and uh, trying to find my way into a band. You know, And I'd buy the Melody Maker every week and circle the, the ads that sounded like something that I could sing along with or play guitar with. Um, but I was always too afraid to actually follow through and call any of these people. One day, one of the waitresses who worked there said, do you know anybody who wants to sing? Because there's some boys who are staying on my living room floor and they're quite nice. Um, and they really want a singer. And I figured, wow, if they're friends of hers, they must be at least, you know, civilized people. So I said, yeah, let's, let's, let's go. And uh, later on that evening, she said, oh, I forgot to tell you, a couple of them used to be quite famous. Did you ever hear of the undertones? At which point, you know, I was just uh, beside myself because I was a a huge undertones fan. Um, Anyhow, things led to things. I went and saw them play a gig and said, well, I don't think you need a singer. But if you if you fancy auditioning me, I'd I'd love to do that. So uh, they said, yeah, we we definitely want to audition you. Uh, Auditioned on a let's see, I think the first one was on a. Tuesday. And I thought I did brilliantly. We, uh, we did a whole bunch of cover versions together and, and, uh, like everything they asked me said, you know, do you know any stooges? And I'm like, I know all the stooges. <laughs> what do you want to sing? They said, do you know any velvet underground? I'm like, I know all the velvet undergrounds. And they said, do you know any buzzcocks? I'm like, I know every buzzcock song ever. 
so it just seemed like a match made in heaven. Uh, and we, I, I got so excited. I went out that night and just got hammered with my friends at the restaurant. And of course they called back the next day and said, we're not quite sure. <laughs> Could you come back again? And I went back the second day with a, just a terrible hangover and thought I'd blown it and, uh, just went back to the restaurant. They're like, how'd it go? And I'm like, ah, there, there's no way it's, it's not going to happen. But for some reason, I, something happened on the second day that convinced them and they called me back and said, right, you're in the band. Uh, we are doing a photo session on Sunday and then we're going back in the studio on Tuesday to recut the vocals. We'll see you there. Oh, amazing. And that's it. And suddenly I was the singer. You were the singer. And, and obviously it was quite good because um, we had John Peel, who was the sort of, I suppose, the, the go-to person in his show, especially during the week, to, to hear whatever, what was going on. So obviously, you know, you got picked up with the John Peel show as well quite quickly. Yeah, I mean, obviously that was due to the fact that John Peel, you know, had a, a, a deep affection for the undertones. And, and uh, so he picked up on uh, our first single, and, um, you know, that got played and, and we just started playing and, you know, as you, as you did back in the day, just start playing back rooms of pubs all around London. And from the very beginning, there was always at least some curious, curious people there. Just like, I wonder what the new, what John O'Neill and Damien O'Neill's new band is like, but it was just a fairly rapid ascent. We went, you know, all of a sudden we were like selling out pubs and then we started getting support offers for, uh, a lot of bands moving through town and, and all of a sudden we got offered a support slot tour with the long riders and, and it happened relatively quickly for us, which was amazing because I was just, I felt like I was just along for the ride. I happened to be in the right place at the right time. You certainly were. And we were certainly grateful for it. That was the first part of my interview with Steve Mack from That Petrol Emotion. Still several more to go. But anyway, to keep the party rolling, this is Hey Venus. <laughs>
I know, it's rubbish when you have to fade a song. But anyway, I know I've got quite a bit more to um, get in before the end of the show. That was Hey Venus from their album, Kenny Crazy. Anyway, this is the second part of my interview with Steve Mack from the band, where I talk about the interesting five-year arc that most bands have. And I think uh, that Petrol Emotion managed to survive more than five years. Well done. Very accelerated because, like I said, you know, we... The songs, they had already been writing the songs, and I think they'd been together for about nine months before I came on the scene. Um, so they had most of a set put together. Um, and of course, sets back then, you know, for, for small up-and-coming bands were, were quite short. You only needed, you know, eight songs or so. Uh, and of course, we went through lots and lots of different cover versions of bands that we loved or, or wanted to emulate or whatnot. Um, but we went, so like when we started playing, the first gig was, I believe, in March of 85. Uh, no, was it March or May? I think it was May 85. Yeah, because John's daughter was born in April. And that was at uh, Woolwich Thames, no, Thames Polytechnic in Woolwich, London. And uh, then from there, we got a residency at the Mean Fiddler in Harleston. And literally by the end of the summer, we were selling out um, small backrooms and clubs. The first record had come out. We wanted to put out a second record uh, fairly immediately, but the record label we were, we were working with didn't have much money. But we got approached directly by a gentleman who worked at Rough Trade, and he said, "Well, look, if you guys want to put a record out, we can just distribute it for you. You just need to, you know, form your own record label." And we're like, "Well, how do you? How does one do that?" And he goes, "Think of a name, mate, and just say you have a record label." Uh, and, and rough trade this, this gentleman, Brian O'Neill is extremely helpful to us over the years. You know, like we were like, okay, well we want to play outside of London. He's like, well, get yourself some gigs. We're like, how do you do that? And he gave us literally a, a mimeographed list or no, maybe it was a photocopy. Um, <laughs> but it was a, a bit of paper with literally every venue in the entire UK, just every pub. And so we're like, okay, what should we do now? He goes, well, you should use my phone and call them. We're like, okay. <laughs> so myself and Damien would sit there in rough trade in a room in the back in the warehouse and literally just call people. Oh, you fancy having us play? And sure enough, you know, we just we we got gigs in Manchester and Birmingham, and uh, eventually we got picked up by the gentleman who used to book the Undertones when he realized that we were starting to sell out the back room of the pubs, he's like, well, I can get you actually decent gigs. And that's when you would have seen us like at the Norwich UEA and, yes. you know, all, all the, you basically get on the, the polytechnic circuit where you're, you're playing all those places. And then it's fantastic because not only are they stuffed full of young, beautiful, drunken people, um, but you're getting paid a reasonable amount of money. So then all of a sudden you can afford the petrol to, to go up to Birmingham and, and Manchester and whatnot. Um, and from there, it wasn't very long before, uh, you know, the label started sniffing around for, you know, whether or not they, you know, would be interested in doing an album. And we had, at that point, Rough Trade actually approached us and they were 
very much interested in in putting out an album for us. And yet again, at the very last minute, a second label, Rough Trade, said, actually, we're really quite busy right now with this new band called the Jesus and Mary Chain. Can you wait a little bit? We're like, ah, no, (laughs) we can't wait anymore. We're ready to go now. And uh, another label, uh, Demon Records, uh, which was run by Jake. Gosh, what was Jake's last name? Anyway, he was Jake Riviera, I believe. Oh, yeah. And he was very much involved with uh, Elvis Costello and, and Nick Lowe and that whole sort of ilk of bands. And, and they had a fantastic back catalog. And we just thought, yeah, let's, let's, let's go with them. Excellent. Yes, I think they were all part of Stiff Records, weren't they, actually, that bunch? They all sort of, they'd, yeah. they'd had things. But then, because obviously you hit Gold Dust with your first couple of, sing- well, first three or four singles, you know, because obviously... The big one that, that started to break was it's a good thing, but then a big decision. So when, you know, because obviously that just got picked up instantly. I mean, did that song come together quite quickly? Um, so it's a good thing was one of those really, really, really easy ones. John came and he had a he had the the sort of chiming descending riff that that the song is based on. Um, and then, you know, there's just there's just a couple of chords on after that. And uh, he had the first verse and the the um, chorus, and he basically sang those to us. We all plugged in, started playing it, looked at each other, and we're like, "Well, that's a single then." I mean, it's just it was just so simple and immediate. And of course, the minute we started playing it out in the pubs, people started going nuts for it and singing along with it. We're like, "Okay, well, that's definitely the single." Um, Big decision was a little a little tougher. in so much as, you know, it's the usual, John said, oh, I've got an idea for a new song. And he had, uh, you know, the the first verse and the chorus. And we had that, but it went through a number of sort of iterations as to how we, we played it. We tried drumming it different ways and whatnot. And then when we went to the studio with uh, Roly Moseman, um, at that point, we were really starting to get into a lot of vintage hip hop. And we were getting into... Um, a lot of there was a band called the Young Gods from Switzerland who were friends of mine, and he had produced their album, and that's the reason why we decided to work with him. And so we were looking for something else. We didn't want to be just a, a run-of-the-mill guitar band. We were trying to find something different, and that's when Roly brought in some sort of programmed drums to put on top of that, which made it you know into the single and to the release. And we tried to duplicate in various ways live over the years. Um, so that one was a little bit more crafted as a single, as opposed to it's a good thing, which just, just tumbled out. It was so simple. Because cause that took me, and this is, you know, obviously in the eighties, so it was a bit more different to, uh, difficult to find these things, but you have a rap on it, don't you? That's right. And, and yes. that rap kind of, you know, took year, well, a long time for me to sort of, I don't know, did you get it from a band called Brother D in the collective effort? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and he, he got that from um, uh, a famous uh, uh, African-American civil rights worker. I forget what her name was. God, um, it's, it's going to escape me right now. But Agitate, Educate, Organize is, is you know, sort of a rallying call yes. of, of civil rights movement. And um, Brother D picked it up. And, and that rap was off the record, the Brother D and the Collective Effort record that Raymond used to play back at his disco when he first 
um, you know, <clears throat> hooked up with John. So Raymond had had that kicking around in his in his in his mind for for many many years, and was always looking for a, a place to sort of put it. Took me absolutely ages to find that single by Brother D and the collective effort, but I did eventually. Anyway, that was the second part of my interview with Steve Mack, and I realised time is ticking on, so I'm going to have to go straight into the third part. And um, if you were paying attention, you heard him mention the young gods, and um, I asked him how he got to meet the young gods who I saw many years ago. Silverfish was supporting them at the time. I'll try and tell the, the, the very quick version of the story. Um, Franz and I met on a, on a <clears throat> ferry from Athens to Crete. And uh, I, this was when I was first traveling around Europe. And uh, there were four of us. Two of us didn't have enough money, so they hid in, our, in the Volkswagen van we were driving around on the, the car deck. And the other two of us went upstairs and just were wandering around the deck, just trying to find people to talk to. And we finally found this guy who had a mohawk and a guitar case. And we just walked to him and said, hey, you look like the most interesting person on this boat. You want to drink beer? And he just said, yes, okay. And we had a whale of a time. We ended up you know, hanging out for a month together on Crete and uh, – as on our way back up through Europe, about a month later, we stopped in Switzerland and stayed with him and his friends and just had a wonderful time. And our parting words were literally, he's like, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to go to London and I don't know, try and get in a band or something. And what are you going to do? And he had showed me all his musical instruments and, you know, played me his records from bands he'd been in. He's like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to start a new band, but I'm going to base it around samplers. And I was like, well, all right then. Okay. I fast forward, you know, a year and a half after that, and I'm in the in the warehouse at Rough Trade, you know, calling people, looking for gigs and stuff like that. And I bump into Franz's good friend who worked at a record store in Geneva. And he's like, Steve, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I, I'm in a band, actually. Have you heard of that petrol emotion? And he's like, oh, my God, that's you? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm a singer. And it's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to tell Franz. He's going to be so excited. So he put us back in touch. I'd lost touch with him because at very early on in my career, that petrol emotion, the squat I was staying in burnt to the ground. And so I lost everything. I lost literally everything I had, including all my contact addresses. Um, so I got back in touch with Franz and he sent me uh, a cassette tape of his, the, the first Young Gods record. It's like, hey, look, this is my band. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. And so that's why we invited them to come over and go on tour with us. And that's how, you know, so they were introduced uh, to the UK was through this wild connection, how I had met him on a ferry boat from <laughs> uh, Athens to Crete. God, that's fantastic, actually. Yes, well, yes. I, I didn't know much about them, and I was going to, you know, seeing the support band, Silverfish, and thinking, wow, they're quite different and, you know, quite exciting. Plus, you know, quite, yeah. quite menacing as well, really, especially their supporters, all fans. But um, so look, that petrol emotion, you're, you're trucking through albums at this rate, aren't you? Because you just, you've released um, uh, Manic Pop Thrill, and then after that, it was the one, you know, Babel which was kind of a year later. So were things still, the, were the wheels still on and everything going well? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, you know, it was, it was, everything was going incredibly well because at that point, you know, you, you, the, we had songs left over from the first album and, you know, we were just firing on all cylinders. And so the, the songs for the second album were, came, you know, pretty fast and furious. Um, 
And then, you know, we got to record in a, we got to take longer to record it. We got to record in better studios, you know, the, the, the whole business. Um, and then, you know, we got, we came so dangerously close to, to, to getting a hit, you know, we were on the tube and our record went all the way up to number 42. And we thought, Oh my God, next week we're going to be in the top 40. Well, alas, it was, it was never to happen, but, um, and nevertheless, things were going very, very well for us at that point. But then it, we just sort of hit a speed bump in that um, <clears throat> we were signed to Polydor Records. And the gentleman who signed us was the managing director. And we we got on with him really, really well. He's a great guy. And, you know, his promise to us was, you know, just take your time. Do whatever you need to do to, to just be great. Um, and then he got a phone call from a gentleman named Paul McCartney who said, please come manage MPL Enterprises or whatever his uh, his sort of holding company is called. And so we got called in and he said, look, gents, I am so sorry. I know I promised you this. I said, he said, but you know, Paul McCartney doesn't call twice in your lifetime. He calls once and we were like, no, Richard, you've got to do it. You, you absolutely, don't worry, we'll be fine. Well, it turns out we weren't fine. The next manager who came in was a jackass named David Munns. He's still in the record industry and ruining people's lives. But um, he uh, came and basically called us in and he said, right, boys, one of the hits going to start coming out. And we're like, pardon? And he's like, yeah, the next record really needs to have a hit on it. Otherwise, we're going to have some issues. And uh, our manager had had a previous history with this jackass and literally had held him over a balcony once and almost dropped him off of it. So we were like, oh, my God, we are – we are now, we have a contract with a company whose managing director we do not do not like and do not see eye to eye with. Well, it turns out that at the end of every year, due to a loophole in the contract, you, you know, they had to send us a letter by registered mail that says, this is, you know, the official notification that we'd like to hang on to you for another year. Well, they forgot to send that letter. And my manager was like, okay, <clears throat> we're out then. Let's go get a new record deal. Excellent. The problem is that we went over to the U.S. to go on tour, and <clears throat> we were on Polygram over there, and they're like, well, we love you guys, but, you know, why should we be working your record? You know, you're no longer going to be on on uh, Polygram anymore. And we weren't – we didn't have any records out on Virgin, so the cracks started to appear in the facade where it just became, we got sort of caught in between labels. And then when we got back to the UK and it was time to release, well, you know, we, we had a tour in the UK and the similar thing, you know, Virgin was, well, they were supportive, but not that supportive. And then it took us a long time to write the songs. And then, you know, we put out, uh, I can only call a challenging record. You know, the third record, we really went as far as we could down the, whole soul uh, journey that we were going on. We were listening to a lot of Curtis Mayfield. We were listening to a lot of Stevie Wonder. We were listening to a lot of, you know, hip hop and stuff like that. And we just thought, doesn't matter. Wherever we go, our fans will follow us. Well, it turns out <laughs> that the fans not really, especially when we put out Groove Check as a single, which is, it's a great single. You know, if you, if you went to a disco and heard that, you'd be like, oh, wonderful. This is great. But... <laughs> It's just it wasn't what people expected that petrol emotion to play, you know, and, you know, that we still have our hardcore friends and fans and, you know, they're like, oh, no, that's my favorite record. <clears throat> I get that. But it, it wasn't the record to get us 
additional fans to get us from number 42 into the top 40. And unfortunately, points mean prizes. Anyway, that is nearly the end of my interview with Steve Mack from That Petrol Emotion. This is David Easter on the C86 Show. This is just one little bit where um, I ask him what he would say to his 18-year-old self. It's going to be gripping. Work harder. You know, uh, we, we should have worked a lot harder. We should have written more songs. We should have toured more. Um, you know, making, becoming a success in anything, you know, whether it's music. I mean, but in particular, the, you know, entertaining arts is, is all about who works the hardest, you know. And we should have kept going. And that's the other thing. And you, you, the other thing is you can't just get all uh, passionate about it and say, oh, you know, uh, I'm leaving. I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. And it's like, guess what? It's not a playground. Nobody cares. If you stop playing, you will just stop playing and you will no longer be playing. Um, the only way to, 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 to be successful is to just put the hard work in and, and to continue to write more songs because, you know, music is its own reward. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about playing in stag now is that we're all men of a certain age and we all have been in a, a number of different bands and we do this one because we just love it. And that, you know, plugging a, an electric guitar into an amp and making a big, huge, glorious 70s rock song is just so fantastic. There's nothing that can can match it. And to be able to, con to continue to do that and not be concerned about whether I can afford my rent or whether I can put food on the table is just such a such a blessing. And that was my fourth and final part of the interview with Steve Mack, one time a lead singer with that petrol emotion, and now in a band called The Stag on the west coast of the USA. Anyway, that is the end of the show. Thank you ever so much for listening. This has been David Eastall on the C86 show. If you want to contact me, you can through Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 show and I will be there. But I'm going to leave you with another track from, from Manic Pop Thrill. This is a natural kind of joy. And if you're listening again on the podcast, you'll hear a track that I've included by the stag called Bedazzler. Anyway, have a great week and tune in next week because I'll have another special guest. Sure.